Hello and welcome to Sonnetcast, William Shakespeare sonnets recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, And summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, And often is his gold complexion dimmed, And every fair from fair sometime declines, By chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, Nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, When in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. One of the most famous sonnets in the canon, Sonnet 18, bursts onto the scene with an energy, confidence and message all of its own, setting the tone for a whole new kind of relationship and putting the poetry itself centre stage. It is one of the easiest to understand, which may in part account for its immense popularity, and it is utterly delightful in its unabashed affirmation of life. And what does it actually mean? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Shall I compare you to a summer's day? It really doesn't need translation. It's a rhetorical question, of course. Should I make a comparison between you and a beautiful summer's day? And the answer indirectly comes straight away. Thou art more lovely and more temperate. You are more lovely and more tempered or moderate and therefore more mild-mannered, more pleasing in your moods and your emotional weather in inverted commas than any summer's day or summer day. Because listen to what actually happens in early summer. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. The lovely blossom buds of an early summer day in May get shaken by rough winds. And summer's lease hath all too short a date. And summer itself is all too short. Date here is an expiration date. And so a lease that has a short date is a short lease. Sometime too hot, the eye of heaven shines. Sometimes the sun, the eye of heaven, simply shines too hot. And often is his gold complexion dimmed. And also quite often the golden face of the sun is obscured by clouds, for example. And every fair from fair sometime declines. And in fact everything that is beautiful will at some point lose this beauty by chance, all nature's changing course, untrimmed, cut down to its unadorned, bare or barren state of old age by the vagaries of chance and accident, 
or simply by the ever-changing weather and seasons. Something that is trimmed is decorated, so a summer day is trimmed with beautiful flowers, for example, whereas once it has been untrimmed, then these adornments have been taken away, as happens to every summer and to every living thing, eventually through the passing of time and the events that occur in our lives. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, but your summer will be eternal, it will not fade, and thus come to an end, nor lose possession of that fare thou owest, nor will it, your eternal summer, and therefore by extension you, lose that beauty which you own. Note that owest does not mean something that you owe, but something that you own. It is a contraction of ownest. Nor shall death brag, thou wanderest in his shade, nor shall death, who is again here personified, ever be able to brag or boast that he has you in his shade, meaning that he, death, owns you because you are walking behind him in his shadow towards the valley of the dead, when in eternal lines to time thou growest, when you grow towards the future time in the eternal lines of my verse. Because so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, for as long as men, for which read all human beings, are alive on this planet and therefore able to breathe and their eyes can see and are therefore able to read, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. This sonnet here that I have written for you will live, and it is this sonnet that makes you live forever. Gone is any attempt at making the young man marry to prolong his existence, to preserve his beauty, or to assure the continuation of his lineage. Some editors detect in the last line of the last quatrain a reference to the genealogical line, when I, the poet, say to the young man, Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. But even that is at best spurious, as it is much more likely that here I simply refer to what I am about to make so abundantly clear. These lines of poetry are what keep you alive in the minds and hearts of future generations. This sonnet 18 is a nearly direct declaration of love to, yes, its recipient, but even more so, and much more directly, to poetry itself. And what's more, it turns itself into a self-fulfilling prophecy, because when I conclude it with, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee, I tell no lie. We may not know for certain whom this sonnet is actually really properly addressed to, although, as you are aware, if you've been following this excursion here on SonnetCast, we have been receiving and will continue to receive some strong pointers, but whoever this person is, they exist vivid 
and strong in our imagination and they intrigue us to the point where we do ask and almost have to ask the question that so pushes itself to the fore now and it is not so much a question as a bundle of questions which are all interwoven and which all appear in an instant together. Is this sonnet a real communication to a real person? Should we read it as something I, the poet, have written to an actual recipient? Or could it not be that it is simply an exercise in gorgeous poetry-making? We have more or less answered this in the introduction and been accepting the whole series so far as real poetry with a purpose to a real person. And there really is no reason to suddenly now assume that this here changes. Then, if it is a real person, is it necessarily, as most people believe, still a man we are talking to, and is it necessarily the same man as the previous 17 sonnets? About this we talked a bit when looking at Sonnet 17, and in fact also in the special sonnet cast edition about the procreation sonnets, and there we observed a maybe not strictly linear, but nevertheless clearly traceable trajectory these sonnets appear to be on. And so while it is possible that Sonnet 18 might have slipped into the collection here completely out of place, it doesn't look or sound it at all. It sounds like it is exactly where it belongs, at the point in the relationship where I, the poet, give up on my task of trying to convince the young man to marry and have children, and instead pick up directly on what I said at the end of Sonnet 17, where I offered him two ways of perpetuating his existence in his child and in my rhyme. Sonnet 18 now makes this second option the one that counts, and the progression fits entirely. And if the recipient of this sonnet is the same person as the previous ones, then this does make him by necessity a young man. Absolutely. And this trajectory, of which we've spoken a few times now, this is not insignificant. If we not only look back at how this sonnet connects with the previous ones directly, but also forward to what I am about to say to the young man about himself and his appearance in sonnet 20 and before then in sonnet 19, where I once again reiterate how my poetry can do the job I have previously ascribed to an offspring, namely allow this young man to conquer time and to live on throughout the ages, then almost any doubt as to the role this sonnet plays and whom it speaks to or why becomes effectively obsolete. Here, as elsewhere, there is a residual amount of doubt always. We simply do not have proof positive about anything, but we have the words, and the words give us such clear indications now that it seems all but obtuse to still wonder, yes, but is it real, or yes, but is it really the same person, or even yes, but is it really a fair youth, a beautiful young man. 
the reason we have over the last 400 years widely and largely formed the opinion that it is, is that very clearly it is. And if this is correct, if it is real, and if it is the same person, and if that same person is, as we have reason to believe, a young English nobleman of high social status, who is obstinate in his refusal to marry, who is either a firstborn or an only son, who bears a striking resemblance to his mother, and who no longer has his father, then William Shakespeare here does something truly extraordinary. Because whoever this young man is, and our shortlist is by now really quite short, as we shortly shall discover, I, the poet, am now putting on paper, and as far as anyone can tell, telling this young man, I am infatuated with him that to me he is lovelier than a summer's day, and that it is through me, none other, through me, that he will live forever. That is, if nothing else, extraordinarily bold, and it presents us, as we proceed, with an entirely new question. What does the young man make of this? Can we even assume, as we do, that he gets to read these lines? Or is this something that William Shakespeare, who, as we have noted early on, must by now be approaching thirty at least, like a teenager writes in his bedroom and keeps there in his drawer as an unspoken fantasy? We can't answer these questions yet, because our approach is to go by the words and what the words tell us alone, or almost alone, and the words don't give us any clue. Yet. But the yet, you will be glad to know, as so very often before, is operational here. We will get very clear pointers on this too, before too long. And indeed, in amongst all these truly fascinating questions and considerations about the person whom this poem might be addressed to, let's not ignore these words. Let's let them actually speak to us. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? For us, this may sound like a nice little phrase that is probably also a poetic commonplace, something that poets routinely say or ask. And it clearly is. Other poets in their poems will have likened someone they adore to a summer day. But put yourself into the England of around 1593. We have spoken before about how cold and bleak winter can be. Not only because there is no central heating, no electric light, no double glazing or contemporary construction and insulation materials, let alone textiles, but England, like much of Europe and indeed many other parts of the world, was then still going through what's known as the Little Ice Age. So winters were harsh and long. What is particularly hard for us to imagine, though, is just how drab and dreary and colourless much of the dark season was. 
We are used to our world being illuminated and filled with colours all year round. We have brightly coloured clothes. We have gadgets and furniture in all kinds of colours. We have printed posters and brightly painted walls. And we spend much of our day looking at super high definition screens and displays that show us everything in richly saturated spectra. In Shakespeare's day, other than for the exceptionally rich, colour did not feature in many people's lives for much of the year. The reason the rich wore colourful clothing was precisely because it was so expensive and thus set them apart. Your ordinary person's winter day played out in shades of brown and beige and sooty grey. So, a summer's day, when it finally came, was a glorious thing. The fact that it did so with its darling buds apparently in May may, on the one hand, have to do with the calendar in use at that time being out of sync with ours, which it was by ten days or so, since England continued using the Julian calendar long after Catholic Europe adopted the corrected Gregorian calendar, or with a degree of poetic license that allows Shakespeare to mingle signs of spring with those of summer, or indeed both. The point being this, a summer's day is as good as it gets. A beautiful summer's day is the best. So if I say to you that you are better than that, then you are really rather amazing. Of course, Shakespeare actually qualifies his comparison and lists several ways in which even a summer day may well be imperfect. But here, as elsewhere, it may be kindest, most generous, and therefore probably best if we don't dwell too heavily on logic. This is poetry after all, and not an exercise in mathematical thinking. Because, as also might be pointed out, what differentiates the beautiful young man here from the beautiful summer's day is not that only he can be eulogised in eternally lasting lines of poetry, but that this is what the poet chooses to do. If he felt like it, Shakespeare could probably write timeless poetry to and about a summer day of unparalleled beauty, and it would thus then last and persist in our collective conscious as much as the young man does. What surely matters most, though, is the simple and boundless joy of this Shakespearean summer salutation. I use this sonnet regularly in my university teaching as the go-to example for our need for poetry itself. Because after all, why write poetry? Why not just say what you want to say and be done with it? We write poetry because we have to. If we hadn't evolved as a species that needs to celebrate, record, solemnize, reflect on and reflect our existence in ways that we can feel as much as, if not more than understand, then we would not have developed poetry. The same with music, the same with art, the same with dance, the same with any cultivated form of expression that makes us what we are. 
human. Poetry is quintessentially human. And so, of course, I can say to you, you are very beautiful and mild-mannered too, and I say you will be so forever. But although the meaning, the semantics is there, it doesn't really mean anything, and it certainly doesn't do anything. But when I say to you, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. You cannot help but love me just a little, just for that just for the tingle it sends down your spine, for the rhythm and the cadence, for the gorgeousness, for the sheer pleasure of the sound. In the 1989 film classic Dead Poets Society, screenwriter Tom Schulman has his boys' boarding school teacher John Keating ask his teenage charges, why do men write poetry? only to answer the question himself, to woo women. This is undoubtedly true, and true too of men who woo other men, and of women who woo women or men, or of people of any or no particular gender who want someone in the world to love them. And the poetry of these sonnets now has just shifted into this greatest of human experiences. Love. Fear not, though. It will not remain here for long. It will range and expound and explore. It will bring us face to face with almost any human emotion we can remember ever feeling ourselves. But this is the real start. If you are only joining our journey now, you are not too late. You may have missed the prelude of the 17 procreation sonnets, which of course you can always go back to and catch up on. It's there to be listened to any time you like. But the real, the exhilarating, the profound encounter with William Shakespeare through his sonnets starts right here, right now, with sonnet 18. And so I hope you will join me again here on Sonnetcast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm.